uh, to Hosea chapter 4 uh, as we can continue this series through the book of Hosea. Uh, we'll look this morning at uh, the whole chapter, uh, so I won't ask you to stand. Uh, but if you would, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Uh, Hosea chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There's swearing and lying, murder, stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, even the fish of the sea are taken away. Let no one contend, let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet shall also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me, and I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom and wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon and swear not as the Lord lives like a stubborn heifer. Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, we pray, oh, our Heavenly Father, that you, would, that you would teach us. Grant us your spirit to hear and to understand. Uh, even reading the chapter again out loud uh, reminds me how odd and unusual and, if we're honest, weird some of the stuff we just read is. Uh, but, Father, we pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear, uh, minds to understand, more importantly, hearts to embrace Christ and to run to him and to be conformed to his image. Would you grant us your spirit even to that end? For we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
you know, names are um, names are a funny thing. Uh, every every now and then, um, you know, you you get a birth announcement. You know, so and so has been born, and and sometimes sort of the first thought in your head is that name seems a little too grown up for a newborn baby. Like that's an adult name, and and here it's given. It just seems odd to us, or. Or, um, you know, you expect when you hear a name, you kind of have this notion somebody's going to be like this, right? Uh, it would be rather odd. It'd be, it'd be unusual, I guess, at best if you met somebody named Samson and they were, you know, little scrawny kids. Um, or if you met someone named Einstein and they weren't really all that smart. Um, we sort of expect, you know, we, we, we want people to kind of live up to their name. Um, for that matter, our golden retriever, uh, Bingley, uh, is named after Mr. Bingley in Pride and Prejudice. If you haven't read Pride and Prejudice, fix that. Um, yes, men, you too. Uh, Mr. Bingley in Pride and Prejudice is the opposite of Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy is the one who's all aloof and distant, you know, whatnot, the one that everybody seems to. Mr. Bingley is, is fun. Um, he enjoys social settings, large and small. Um, he's, he's not remotely arrogant. He's not remotely pretentious, despite the fact that he's, he's wealthy. Um, he enjoys being kind of around people. That's a per and in, at least in one series, he's portrayed as a redhead. So it seems like a perfect name for a golden retriever who's all about Where's the people? Like, I don't care who they are. I'm not going to look down on you or think you're great because of this or that. I just want to be where the action is. I want to be where the, the social activity is. We, we like it when names, when people sort of live up to their names. We have the opposite of that in Hosea chapter 4. Uh, we have Israel living up to the names that, that God has given that God has told Hosea to name his children. So Hosea's children bear these, these names. Uh, Hosea and Gomer, Gomer's children bear these names. And Israel actually is living up to those names that they have been given. Um, Gomer and, and Hosea have been married back in chapter 1. She uh, has left. He's gone and retrieved her again in chapter Three uh, children were born to them back in chapter one, uh, and God gave them uh, these particular names. Here in chapter four, the meta, the marriage metaphor is gone. We're leaving that one behind, uh, and and the children actually take uh, center stage in this particular chapter. So there's this picture, and this is this is the pun in the sermon title for any of you who even paid any attention whatsoever. Uh, Hosea's children, or to use an out-of-date term, Hosea's charges are actually bringing charges against Israel by their very names. The firstborn, Jezreel, brings a charge against Israel. Look at the first three verses. There's a description here of a, a people. Israel has become unfaithful. Uh, there's no faithfulness. There's no steadfast love. That's that Hebrew word hesed. And, and you, get to, you get to spit a little bit, right? It's in the back of the chesed. Um, that's, that frequently you'll find in the Psalms as loving kindness. There's a, 
Um, there's, not a, there's not one English word to give you what they mean. Steadfast, loving kindness seems to kind of, of work. Um, but there's no, there's no faithfulness. There's no steadfast love. There's no knowledge of God. Uh, it's, it's all absent. Those things are absent from Israel. You almost have this sense, you know, when you go high, you know, looking high and low for something you've lost and you just can't find it anywhere. It's, it's got that sort of sense as though as though God were looking for integrity, um, for uprightness, for faithfulness, um, as that word kind of kind of means and, and looking for that and can't find it anywhere. Looking for Hesed, for steadfast, loving kindness and can't find it for knowledge of God and, and can't find it anywhere. The words sort of carry with them a, a comment about how God's people see God, but also how they see each other. Uh, there's no integrity in their vertical relationship with God. There's no integrity in their horizontal relationships. There's no loving kindness, which is decidedly, inherently others-centered. Kind of half-tempted to... To tell you to imagine that world, right? Imagine a world in which someone's word means nothing. Uh, imagine a world in which um, truth itself is, is completely ignored if it's even acknowledged to exist at all. Uh, imagine a world in which um, you can't trust what anybody else says. I'm tempted to say, just think of what life would be like if that was your world. But that is your world. Right? That's, that's where we live. We live in a world of, of distrust. You can't believe. I mean, it's on the Internet. It's in print on the Internet. Right? You can't, you can't trust it. You can't assume that everything you read on the Internet is true. We are convinced that news channels aren't really reporting news they're giving you their spin on their ideology and what they want you to think, not just the information they want you to know. Social media? You don't, you don't know how many takes it took to get that picture of that meal on Pinterest. You have no idea what filters have been used on Instagram. You have no idea what... What amount of, of photoshopping has been done to, even to that porn site? You can't trust anything out there. Perhaps what's saddest of all is that it's easy enough for us to distrust, but it seems to be fostered by the very people who depend on our trust. It seems to be fostered and fueled by the very people who want and need us to trust them. They'll tell you, you can't trust anything at all except me. That's, that's this world. That's this lack of faithfulness, lack of integrity, lack of loving kindness. Without chesed, without loving kindness, people become self-centered and cruel. It's really kind of a picture of our own world. It's a picture of our very lives. It's a picture of our condition. Right. Think about it. When when you worship yourself, what's naturally going to follow behind that? 
right? You have a right to be frustrated and angry when your God, you, isn't also worshipped by my husband's my husband, whose God is himself, by my neighbor, whose God is himself, by my kids, whose God is right. You see the problem when everyone's God is themselves, then there's this constant anger, constant frustration, constant distrust. That's what you expect to find in a world that has no knowledge of God. But notice that we're told here what we find in its place And I hope verse two sounds familiar to you. Maybe not the verse itself, but the language should trigger a memory. It should trigger another passage that you know and you know well. Listen to the words. Listen to what is there. Okay, there's no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God. But here's what we do find in Israel. Swearing or, or cursing or blasphemy, lying, murder, stealing. Adultery. That's commandments three, nine, six, eight, and seven, if if that helps you. What we find is violation of God's law, violation of, of God's commandments. There's there's cursing or, or blasphemy, there's lying, we're not telling the truth, there's murder and hatred and anger, there's adultery, it's a picture of People whose very lives rail against God in every way. You've known atheists, perhaps. Atheists, of course, doesn't believe God exists, right? There there is no God. But one thing you quickly learn about atheists is they hate the God they say doesn't exist. They're quick to get angry at him. They're quick to blame him for things. They're quick to, and that's kind of, of this world. I mean, the reality is if God doesn't exist, I can say what I want. I can do what I want with my own body and I don't have to respect your stuff. That's what we find in verse two. It's an indictment against Israel. It's a, it's also an indictment against us. I mean, the reality is that the very heart of our sin, the very heart of of any sin, for that matter, of of jealousy, of talking about people behind their back, of anger or frustration at someone's material success, of lashing out in anger and hatred, hatred at someone else. Those are all violations of commandments three, nine, six, eight and seven, by the way. At the heart of all of that, at the heart of each of those things is a denial of God and a demand that I get to be my own God. There's a a charge against Israel, but there's also an indictment against us. What do you expect in that world? What's it going to look like? How will you recognize it? Well, notice the end of verse 2. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. You expect a a godless world in which there's no integrity and and no loving kindness. You expect that world to be a bloody one. You expect that world to be Jezreel. 
what the Valley of Jezreel was. It was a, a place of bloodshed, of murder, of, of um, distrust, of trickery, of war, all of those things. Jezreel, the firstborn son, firstborn child of, of um, Hosea and Gomer, bears that name as a charge against Israel. You have become Jezreel. You have become a bloody people. So this picture then is that Israel is actually living up to the name of Hosea's first child by being a people of bloodshed. Hosea's third child, Loami in Hebrew, if you want to learn some Hebrew, not my people, also brings a charge against Israel. You know, it's easy to read this, I think, and, and ask the question, and it seems so obvious to us. How could they not know God? Right? I mean, like that seems so obvious to us. I mean, we think that's a reasonable question in the United States. Right? And the United States doesn't exist because, because God is the God of the United States in that sense. Not the way Israel. How does Israel exist? Because God went and grabbed Moses and said, look, you're going to deliver these people from slavery in Egypt. Because God preserved them through the wilderness until they got to the promised land. Because God was with Joshua as they defeated their enemies and took over. How can the people not be talking about God's grace and mercy to them throughout all of their generations? How could, how could Israel not know the, the story, the account of, of Moses, of, of Rahab, of Jericho, of David? How could they not be talking about this all the time? This is their background. And so you're kind of, well, how can there be no knowledge of God? It seems, it seems preposterous to us. Because we think it's preposterous in the United States or in the South, at least, of the United States. We think it's preposterous that somebody wouldn't know God, right? We sort of go, well, I mean, I'm, I'm an American I'm raised in the South. That means I'm a Christian sort of by definition, right? By osmosis, by association. Well, there's two possible reasons for that. One is that the people will not listen the other is that the people will not be told. Notice the charge against the priests. You aren't instructing God's people. In verse 4, the, the charge, the responsibility lands squarely at the feet of the priests or on the shoulders of the priests might be a better way to put it. They should be the ones upholding righteous temple worship. They should be the ones communicating God's word to the people. They should be the ones instructing the people of Israel in the knowledge of God, and they aren't. They should be making sure that the people know and keep the law of God, and they aren't. In fact, the reality is from, from the very beginning, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, exists because of rebellion against God, against David and, and his line who would be on the throne, 
And from the very beginning, they've been worshiping Baal. Jeroboam I, the very first king of this northern kingdom, instituted Baal worship, idol worship from the start. And the reality is there have not been priests who know or teach God's word to God's people. In fact, there's even a little little tongue-in-cheek jab. You have to love it when, when God literally mocks the foolishness of sin and rebellion and idolatry. Did you notice verse 12? My people inquire of a piece of wood. No different than their walking stick, right? You you take a piece of wood, and Isaiah has a whole story on this in Isaiah 44, I think it is. But you take a piece of wood, and you whittle, you carve, you make for yourself a, a walking stick, a walking staff. And the other you carve into an idol that you then bow down to and worship. My walking stick gives me oracles. My walking stick tells me what to do, what to believe, how to live my life. It's, it's, a, it's a making a mockery of idolatry. It makes no sense that you would, would take a piece of wood and you would carve it into an idol that you would then worship, but you made it so you are by definition greater than it is. You also use part of that wood as firewood. Well, if I can burn that piece, why can't I burn this? Well, you can't burn that. That's an idol. Or you use another part to make a staff. We're using, returning to our walking stick to give us oracles. It sounds silly, doesn't it? I mean, we laugh at that. We, we kind of go, nobody, nobody. At least nobody in the United States actually does that. Curiously, now, humor me, right? The, the, the Bible's not getting there from this we are what's money made out of paper which comes from wood what's your house made out of well all kinds of things but it's framed by wood right we have all kinds of things that that actually oddly enough curiously enough come from wood that we worship that we sort of Take pride and, and bow down to in some form or another. The reality is our idols are no less foolish than Israel's. They're no more worthy of our attention than Baal or a walking stick. And yet we worship them. Isaiah 4 paints this, this picture of God's people who are giving themselves Freely and promiscuously to false gods. And in verse 13 and 14, you get the sort of a, a recounting, a, a bit of a storytelling of what happens up there in the hills under the shade trees. It's under these nice big shade trees that we can offer sacrifices to Baal. Well, now we might as well eat all this meat and turn it into a feast, which then turns into devolves into sexual debauchery. There's a, a pattern there that it's under these nice shade trees we offer sacrifices to these false gods and it's there that our feasting turns to all kinds of 
of prostitution and adultery. I mean, if you think about it, um, what chance does reading God's word, preaching God's word, singing God's word, praying God's word, seeing God's word, what chance does that have in the face of this? Right? It's... We're sort of naturally, perhaps even if sinfully and and wickedly and kind of even sickly in some ways, drawn to that. If that's what you're going to worship, if that's how you're going to worship, it's no wonder that moral standards would follow suit. And so there's this picture then that God's people have been led astray by the priests, the very people who, who should be... Um, guarding and protecting right worship among God's people. But the reality is the people share the guilt. Uh, they, th- did you notice verse 9? Like people, like priests. That's the other way around. The priests, the, the priests aren't teaching the truth. The people don't want to hear it. They like what they like. They have what they have. And it sounds kind of fun. And that's all we really need and they don't really want to hear what if even if the priests were to tell them the truth, they aren't interested in hearing it. In fact, this, by the way, turn to Second Timothy chapter three. Let me just show you. Paul actually picks up on this. The, Israel is living several hundred years before um, before uh, Paul writing Second Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, we get a glimpse of, of what that's like, what that world is like. 2 Timothy 3, there's a part of 2 Timothy 3 that you know. There are probably two verses in 2 Timothy 3 that you know. Um, and they are verse 16 and 17, right? All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped. Do you know what that's? That, that's the meat of a sandwich. And the sandwich, the bread, is the beginning of chapter 3. Notice the language of the beginning of chapter 3. Understand this. In the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness for denying its, but denying its power. Avoid such people for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burn, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. It pictures a world that the people don't want to hear God's word. The meat then says, here's what God's word is. And then the second piece of bread is the instruction that Paul gives to Timothy in chapter four. Verse two, preach the word. What do you call people? Nations. Nations. Churches who 
mix myth with God's word, who sacrifice the the truth and authority and sufficiency of scripture for the latest, greatest idea in the world around us. What do you call people who um, reject God's revealed will in exchange for whatever seems easy, comfortable, palatable? Well, oddly enough, in today's world, you actually can still call them churches. But what does God say about that here? Notice that in verses 4 to 14, there's a thread of rejection. He calls them not my people. Okay, he doesn't use that exact term, but he does say, verse 6, I reject you from being a priest. Or in verse 10, they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine. Or again in verse 12, it's the last time he calls them my people and he changes the terminology for the rest of the chapter. Notice the chapter ends Israel, Gilgal, Beth Avon, Ephraim, all the same people, no longer called my people. The people don't want to bear his name and he has rejected them for their repeated adultery. Jezreel, not my people, bring charges against Israel. Finally, lo ruhamah, that's no mercy. That's again, Hebrew, in case you care. You know the saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Um, we could spin that and use it in a different context. We take the same sort of concept, right? One man's punishment is another man's warning. Right? Kids, you see your older brother get in trouble for something, you kind of make a mental note. I probably shouldn't do that. I saw so-and-so get punished for that. Maybe I should make a note not to do that. One man's punishment, one man's... Uh, yeah, one man's punishment is another man's warning. Well, notice that that's exactly how the chapter ends in verses 15 to 19. It's a warning against a warning to Judah as they watch what happens to Israel. It's a warning to the southern kingdom as they watch what plays out in the northern kingdom. Though you play the whore, O Israel, verse 15, let not Judah become guilty. Incidentally, in these verses, um, we read multiple names, all that that refer to Israel. Israel, Ephraim, that's still just Israel. Gilgal is a, a city, a place. Beth Avon actually isn't a place at all. But the point is, it refers to a, a, a city in uh, Israel. They're all names being used to represent Israel. And you find in verse 15, Israel is guilty let that be a warning to you, Judah. Beth Avon isn't um, Beth Avon isn't a city. It's a play on a name uh, of another city. Uh, years ago, I coached a JV soccer team uh, at Dillon Christian School when Nathan and I first got married, and um, was doing student ministry at First Pres in Dillon and, and coached their their soccer team, JV soccer. Team. It was the only soccer team they had. Um, there was a girl on a team. Her name was Nicole and all her friends called her nickel. 
Just a play on her name. They spun it, you know, right? I told her she wasn't worth a nickel, so we called her Penny. That's what's going on here. Beth-Avon is a reference to Bethel. The city of Bethel. Bethel means house of God. Beth-Avon means house of disaster or house of deception. So there's this warning uh, to Judah because God will no longer show mercy to Israel. The punishment for Israel is that they're going to be scattered. They're going to come to an end as a nation, as this particular northern tribe. It will cease to exist. And so this is a a warning to Judah. Stay away, verse 15. Don't go up there. You know, the, the Bible, this has implications for us. You know, the Bible never condemns friendships with unbelievers, right? You, you do realize that we should probably all know non-Christians. Um, and, and we also shouldn't hold them to Christian standards because they're not Christians. We should all have friendships. We should all know people who aren't believers. Jesus never condemns uh, his people for, for hanging out with, um, with people who don't believe in Jesus. But there's a warning here. Israel is supposed to, they claim to know God. They're supposed to be God's people and have rejected him. And the warning is Judah, those are the people you need to be careful of. Those are the the people, people who have, have claimed the name of Christ and forsaken him, have thrown off his, his, his name, that relationship, the authority of his word. The reality is Israel should have known better. Because they had tasted God's grace. They had tasted God's mercy. And here they are forsaking his love. We need to be careful about those relationships. Those connections. We need those people to serve as warnings to us. They've exchanged the true gospel for a false one. They've exchanged the one true God for idolatry. The people of Israel are living up to the names of Hosea and Gomer's children. Jezreel, not my people, and no mercy. The question is, if sin is that pervasive, if sin is that ubiquitous, if, that, if, it, if it runs through sort of every part of you and of every part of life and is, is, is all around you, If it's so pervasive and and if even the very people who are supposed to be equipping God's people with his word, even if those people are failing, what then? Where do you go? Where's the hope? Where's the what hope could you possibly have? Well, this passage reminds us that there is a priest who never fails. Who's never failed to teach, to model, to live the one true gospel. Who never fails to, to love his people and to, to point them to, to teach them and instruct them in his word. Jesus is our true and perfect priest. He comes as our priest and, and leads us into the true and saving religion, into the gospel. 
unlike a priest who will exploit his people for his good, Jesus was willing to be exploited for yours. Look to him. There's forgiveness and comfort and mercy in Christ. Would you bow with me? Uh, Father in heaven, we uh, thank you that you have given us your son uh, to redeem us from our sin. The one true perfect priest who has um, offered himself as the sacrifice, who has paid the debt that our sin deserves, who uh, is always true and right and always points us uh, to the truth and power of the gospel and the mercy and grace of a forgiving and loving God. We pray that we would seek him even as he seeks us. We ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.